Hey, good morning. How's everyone today? Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. We're going to get started with worship this morning. Um, if you're able, would you stand to your feet? Let's uh, worship the King of Kings. Oh, 
Surrender, I 
Please join my prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today in all of your love. We are amazed by the way you sent your son, Jesus, to die for our sins. This was the ultimate act of love, and it is a reminder to us of your great mercy and grace. We believe that Jesus' death on the cross paid the full penalty of our sins. We are forgiven and we have the hope of eternal life. Thank you for this amazing gift. We pray that you would help us to understand the depths of your love for us. We want to love you with all our hearts, souls, and minds. We want to live our lives in a way that honors you. Help us to share your love with others. We want to be a witness to your love in the world. We want to show others the hope and forgiveness that we have found in Jesus. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We believe that this verse is a promise to us. Uh, and we pray that you would help us to believe in it with all our, all our hearts. We pray that you will fill us with your love. We want to love you more than um, anything else in the world. We want to love others as you have loved us. Thank you for your love and your grace. We praise you and give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. If this is your first time joining us for our worship service, we're so glad that you're here. On your way in, you should have received a bulletin. On there, you will find our Connect card. If you are looking to get connected with the church, we encourage you to fill out that Connect card so we can get to know you. If you have new contact information, please fill out the Connect card so we can keep you updated. On the other side, you will find our prayer card. If you have anyone in your life who is in need of prayer, please fill out the prayer card or visit our website at ljcc.org prayer. On your way out, you can drop these cards off in the foyer or the box mounted on the wall. We know life gets difficult and there are times we lose trust in God. We lose our focus and we get distracted with everything else going on in our lives. So we want to invite you and your family to join us every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. for our prayer night. Come meet with us as we take time in our busy lives to reconnect with God and put our trust and hope in Him again. We hope you enjoy the rest of our worship service. Boy, that last line puts a lot of pressure on me now. I don't know what it's up. If, if you don't enjoy it, it's not my fault. Let's just put it that way, my disclaimer. 
Uh, Hong Wei, I know you are a computer science professor, but you sounded like a theologian today, so the UC system has a twofer in you. You, uh, you bring a, a lot to the party. Thank you for leading us in that uh, deep prayer. Well, we're delighted you're worshiping with us today, and this summer we're taking a, a continuous look at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a, a protege of Jesus. Now that term, disciple, might throw you for a loop and think, okay, this sounds odd. Or you might say, well, yeah, of course, yeah, I consider myself a disciple of Jesus. Um, disciples are people basically learning from Jesus as they walk through life with Jesus. This is the, the normative standard uh, for people who would um, have faith in Christ. And maybe today you're sitting here saying, you know, I'm not really sure I'm there yet. I'm sort of exploring this. Uh, I'm open to it or... I'm skeptical of this, or, you know, I'm new to this, and I have a faith, but I don't know where it's taking me. Uh, you might be a person who says, no, I'm committed, and I'm growing in my faith. And you might uh, be a person who says, all that, and you know what? I can't imagine my life but for Christ at my core. So wherever you come out on that spectrum, uh, we're glad you're here, and I uh, want to reflect with you on, on the implications of, of thinking of yourself as a disciple of Jesus. Um, uh, in the 60s, there was a fellow named Art Reynolds, and uh, he, he was an African-American man in Long Beach, and the tumult of the 60s, the early 60s, was outrageous everywhere, and the colleges were on fire, and the civil rights movement was in, in full tilt, and uh, as a follower of Jesus, he's trying to figure out what he can do uh, to be Jesus' disciple. And so he was involved in everything. He got involved in the city structure and in programs that were helping youth and, and various aspects of the community. He was also a musician, singer, uh, conductor. And so uh, he created uh, three gospel choirs. And uh, I mean, the guy was amazing in terms of he, he's, he's uh, still with us, um, but this was as a young man doing this. And he kept running into people who were done with Jesus, who had grown up in church, or hadn't, but their idea of Jesus was uh, not so great. And so he used the nomenclature of the hood. Um, at the time, it was that if something was really good, it was just all right. It is just all right. You can be sure that this is all right. This is good. And so he wrote this song, maybe you've heard it, uh, called Jesus is Just All Right With Me. Now, um, maybe the last time you heard this song was in a, a thick haze at a Doobie Brothers concert. I don't know. Uh, maybe uh, you've heard it somewhere else, but um, they recorded it, and, and for him, it was a confession of faith. He's trying to get it out there, and it was a very, very, up, up, you know, um, very, um, at the time, I guess, um, a much more live version of gospel, of gospel music, and so it was a big deal. Well, uh, different bands heard it. Uh, these are ancient history bands, you know, the Birds or the Doobie Brothers, and on and on. It's been recorded. To this day, it's still being recorded by secular artists and Christian artists. And, and it became, though, in pop culture, uh, something else than what uh, Art Reynolds wanted it to be. Uh, it really represented a, not a mock of the faith, but a very clear message of indifference about it. So for him, Jesus is just all right with me, was saying, you got to understand, uh, this is really good. This is what's going to make our community come together. This is what's going to overcome all these big social issues that we're wrestling with. And then very quickly, 
Actually, the day that they recorded this song in Capitol Records, a guy was sitting there who was a drummer for a band called The Birds, and next thing you know, The Birds are doing this song. It becomes this huge hit. And next thing you know, the Doobie Brothers are doing this, and, and they're a biker band from the Bay Area. And the, and the song just has legs. And in interviewing these bands, they'd say, uh, do you, uh, do you guys, are you guys part of the Jesus movement? And they're like, no. We're trying to make it really clear that we think it's cool that there was some guy who lived in Galilee and did stuff like Jesus did, but we're not into that. And so really, Jesus is just all right became an expression of confusion. Um, the funny thing for me was one time I was doing a wedding in Laguna Beach, and it was... Um, uh, it, it started well, and then as soon as I said welcome, it became a chaos. And it was filled with all these musicians and actors, and people wanting to be musicians and actors. And it was just the guy that was getting married had a faith in Christ, but he's marrying somebody who is not. And it was just, uh, it was just a, a mashup. And the best man was the guy who was the lead singer in The Birds who made that song popular. And he leans over to me and he goes, you know, only Jesus can fix this. Uh, and, you know, because we know our, our friend, our brother knows Christ, uh, that, you know, it's going to be all right. And I'm laughing, thinking, oh, my gosh. You hear the guy singing it as, as a semi-mock message of indifference. And our culture has internalized that. That song is old, passe, but that notion, hey, Jesus is just all right with me. And it becomes a pat on the head. Oh, sure, if you, if you believe that stuff, fine, good, you know. I mean, I'm sure people still live in caves and make art there. You know, I don't know. But this is not a new issue for the church to wrestle with. Uh, that, uh, you know, that what, 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 this comes out of the foment of the 60s, but in the 60s of the first century, there's a church called the Church in Laodicea, and a church you've never heard of, and Laodicea, a city you've never been to, and if you do go there, it's a wide spot in the road. But it was one of the most wealthy cities in uh, what we know as modern-day Turkey. Why? Because it was uh, a gold exchange. It was a fabulously wealthy city. And they had these unique black sheep that the Roman elite loved, having clothes made out of this black wool. And then uh, in this area uh, around them, they had minerals and things that made the, the most, the most um, effective eye salve. If you were going to go for eye treatment, this is what they put in your eyes. And there's a church there, and Jesus had an issue with them. And so in the book of Revelation, you see this. We don't have a slide for this, but Revelation 3, um, there's, these, there's these messages going out to the churches in the first century. And <clears throat> the message to this church in Laodicea was, you know, um, you guys think you have it all together. You're self-satisfied because you're wealthy, you're technologically advanced, and you're culturally relevant. People hold you in high regard. And this church, um, Jesus said, is lukewarm. Uh, it's kind of a Goldilocks church, you know, not too hot, not too cold. One of the interesting things about Laodicea is that they piped in their water supply. And the water was tepid, and in the worst version of lukewarm. And it had a kind of off taste to it, because it was very mineral laden. And uh, it was unpleasant to drink. <laughs> so Jesus says, you know, you guys are lukewarm. You're like the water you drink. I would rather you be hot or cold. Uh, and, and he goes on to speak some, some words of judgment and uh, some, some words of challenge to him. 
So what's the message there? Uh, you know, the message uh, in our culture is, hey, don't get carried away with this stuff. This Jesus stuff is interesting, but don't get carried away. Don't act as if it's real knowledge or really important. Keep it as sort of a vestigial aspect of some cultural thing. And you can invoke it on special occasions, pull it out like a parachute if you need to. But, you know, it's not something that um, we're going to get all excited about. Uh, I'm cool with it, but Jesus is gone and his legend lives on. That's about as far as it goes in our culture. Uh, and yet we live in a culture that is inherently confused in spite of our wealth and our technology and uh, the, the ways that we want to engage in aesthetic things that are, that are beautiful and um, interesting. and all that, is being, all that being good. But when you get to know Jesus, he's more than all right. You realize, oh my gosh, all right isn't really adequate to describe Jesus. He's not all right. He's the Lord. And he's the savior, and he's the king. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm speaking to the choir if you already believe this. Uh, but all of us, even if we believe this, at some point we'll see Jesus face to face. And it will, we will not have words to <laughs> describe it, but I can guarantee we won't go, hey, you're all right. We're going to fall on our faces, confessing him as Lord and savior and king, and he's going to graciously, gently pick us up and go, hey, I'm glad you're home. I'm glad you're here and, and embrace us. And uh, words won't even matter at that point. But we're going to see him as he is. Um, in the meantime, uh, with all of our technology and medical insight, we don't have a salve that allow us to see him clearly, but from his word. And what he's telling us in his word is that a disciple is actively, is a person who actively embraces Jesus as he really is. Why? Because he's alive and he's here. He's not cool and gone. He's alive and here. So it's not just having knowledge about Jesus. I believe he was a guy who lived in the first century in Galilee and did wonderful things. Met an untimely death, but he lives on as a, you know, an inspiring person. Uh, it's not about having that level of knowledge. A superficial, um, non-contextual base of knowledge. Rather, it's applying that knowledge in every part of your life, that it actually takes us somewhere. This knowledge actually transforms us and the world that we live in. So let me ask you, is your faith in Jesus shaping how you see and experience yourself and how you see and experience the world? Is that the primary lens through which you see yourself in the world? Uh, because if not, uh, you're not getting the full effect of who you are and what the world is about and who he is. And so when it comes to Jesus, uh, are you a disciple or are you a dabbler? Uh, we live in a culture of dabblers. You can't take a survey, whether it's a Gallup survey or any kind of survey that's given to the American population and not have a very high representation of people who say, I believe in God, and often will affirm and believe in Jesus, or belief in Jesus. Uh, and then it falls off quickly from there. Somebody has called this easy believism. Yeah, sure, I, I, I believe that. But it's not something that's functional uh, in, in people's lives. And so really they're dabblers. And a dabbler takes an inconsistent, casual interest in their faith. Now I'm not saying that their faith isn't sincere. I'm simply saying it's undeveloped. A dabbler is somebody who's been playing guitar for the last 30 years and all those three chords that they know are really awesome. But they've been playing the same songs uh, for the last 30 years. They're dabbling. 
It's a person who dabbles in whatever. And when people dabble, they're okay with a very superficial thing because it's fun. It's, it's, maybe it's recreation to them. It's a, it's a change of pace. I dabble. There's no need to apologize if you're intentionally a dabbler. But if you, if, you, if you don't understand that you can actually be a disciple, you might be missing about, about uh, something about you and what you've, you've been created and developed to do. I love seeing people who dabble with something, and they dabble because they feel like they're not worthy of it or because they, they feel like they're not really qualified for it. But when somebody around them sees in them something uh, that has, holds promise and potential, says, you know, I see you're dabbling in this. Have you ever thought about doing that more deeply? Because you could be really good at that. I see this over and over and over again in, in little kids. I see it in teenagers. I see it in young adults. I see it in older people. It's, for some reason, we have this built-in idea that there's some things I could just never do. And then when you see a person get connected and start doing those things and then doing them at a high level, even if they're doing it as an amateur, not a professional, an amateur is simply, is simply a person who does what they love. It's powerful to see that. I see a person move from being a dabbler to a disciple. Because a, a dabbler... Um, has an initial enthusiasm, but it diminishes or it dies for lack of development. So in, this, in the sense of a person who says, I have a faith in Christ, uh, that would, it, their, their faith would be diminished or, or dead because of a lack of a plan or a purpose or partners. And as long as we're isolated and insulated uh, from the real thing, all we get is a little inoculation that means we don't get the full effect. So where does this go? What does this look like? We, we've been looking uh, this summer at various facets of discipleship. And they all sound like common sense uh, on the face of it. And as you explore it, you think, oh my gosh, why am I not doing this? Why am I not seeing this in this larger context? Because a lot of these are values that we would say anybody would embrace these. Right, but if they're not connected to the power of God in us, we miss the fullest effect. Things like resilience, we've talked about that. Preparation, self-awareness, self-discipline. And today... We're coming to a squishing halt where it, all of a sudden it feels like, wait, this is a step too far. We're going to talk about self-sacrifice. Like, really, do we have to go there? Um, I don't know. You, you tell me when we're done reflecting on this together. Uh, what is self-sacrifice, and is it really necessary? On the face of it, we'd all say, hopefully not. Maybe as a last resort, but certainly not as a normative aspect of life. And um, let's see where that takes us. First of all, how would you define self-sacrifice? Is it unnecessary risk, unnecessary pain, unnecessary work? Or is it something like this, empathy? Availability? Compassion? Care? Respect? Humility, depth of character, depth of feeling, uh, intense and sustaining joy. Would those words fit in your definition or description of self-sacrifice? Uh, if not, I, I, want, well, I want to invite you to rethink and be open to a larger view of what, what self-sacrifice is all about. Um, Empathy, availability, compassion, care, respect, humility, depth of character and feeling, and deep, deep joy. Um, the Apostle John, writing a letter uh, to the young churches, said it this way. This is how we know what love is. Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us. That's how we know what love is. God himself lays down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. 
let's extend that love to other people. Wow. Now, he isn't just saying, let's be nice to people. As Cara Francisco has wisely pointed out, uh, nice is not a fruit of the Spirit. Nice is a, a placeholder, but it's sort of innocuous. What he's saying is, let love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control be what we extend to other people. And he's using this word, we ought to lay down our lives. That's a self-sacrifice phrase. I like the way Paul says it to the Philippians. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now, if I, if I frame this in a, in a non-religious way, it might make more sense initially. It'll, so that we can get to this place where we say this is absolutely normative. I'll read that, phrase, that verse again. For it has been granted to you uh, to believe in golf and to suffer for it. Since you are going through the same struggle, you see that I have suffering in golf. And now here that uh, you saw that I had, now here that I still have. For it's been granted to you to not only believe in marriage, but to suffer for it. To not only believe in parenting, but to suffer for it. To not only believe in education, but to suffer for it. To not only believe in entrepreneurship, but to suffer for it. And since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, now here that I still have. What you're hearing is somebody saying, if, if I'm going to do anything at a high level, it's going to cost me something. And so Peter uh, says it this way. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Don't let the suffering or the sacrifice, inevitable in any important endeavor, cause you to give up the desire to do good. Because it's, it's doing good, doing the right thing, doing the best thing, doing something that is a game changer that gets us into any significant commitment. And at some point, we talked about this last week in self-discipline, we get pushback. Internal pushback. Uh, Stephen J. Pressfield, um, you can go back and look at uh, what we talked about last week or look him up. Uh, he calls this the resistance. He's, wrote a, he's written a beautiful book, an awesome book uh, for people who are creatives in business or arts, sciences, uh, called the, the War of Art. And he says, as soon as you want to take on something of significance, you're going to find this internal resistance and external resistance. And you can rationalize it a thousand and one ways, uh, but push through it because there's something powerful and good on the other side of that. And so what are the necessary ethics of self-sacrifice and the, the boundaries that go with self-sacrifice? If we're going to take this seriously as something that uh, we want to take a closer look at as disciples of Jesus, that this is endemic and inherent to being a disciple, wh what are the boundaries that we should understand? Uh, if you're not familiar with the, the concept of boundaries, uh, I would suggest you read a book uh, called Boundaries. Uh, uh, Cloud and Townsend has, is a classic book. What are boundaries? They're not ways to keep people out in the scary world away. Boundaries are how do you understand what is yours and what is not yours? When we have blurred boundaries, uh, we, we make life miserable for ourselves and other people. Uh, some families, think of your family of origin, some families are really disconnected. Uh, there's, a, there's a sense of boundary saying, don't get too close to me. Some families are like that game you play when you put your hands like this and you go like this and somebody points to a finger and you don't know which finger they're pointing to and you can hardly figure it out. 
uh, they're so enmeshed that the family exists to take over you and your personality. Some people spend their whole life trying to get away from their mom or dad because their mom and dad so infused themselves into that person's life. So boundaries is simply saying, who am I and what are my responsibilities and, and what does it mean for me to make my way through the world? It's a very powerful, positive thing. How to say yes and how to say no. Uh, and, and likewise, uh, ethics, or then, you know, what's the best good I can do? So even when you're talking about something like self-sacrifice, you're talking about boundaries and ethics. So let me give you a context. Uh, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So self-sacrifice then picks up that last part, loving your neighbor as yourself. So that would be a boundary issue, wouldn't it? If you take the word as and substitute words like like or while, it might give you a sense of what the boundaries look like. Love your neighbor as or like we love ourselves. Love your neighbor as or while we love ourselves. Let me put this in context. If you're in a situation where you think you're being loving and you're being self-sacrificial, but you're in an abusive relationship, it doesn't make sense. You're not loving your neighbor like you love yourself or while you love yourself. You're discounting yourself. You have, a, you have a confused boundary, and therefore you're doing something that really is morally compromised. If you're in an abusive relationship, uh, you need help. You need, for one, you need to get out of that relationship long enough to, so to look at it and maybe out of it forever. This is a, a, a big deal. If you're, if you're thinking you're in a self-sacrificial relationship but you're really being abused, it's no, it's no longer an act of a disciple. It's, an, it's the act of a, of a dysfunctional person. And it leads to discouragement, despair, and ultimately, oftentimes, to death. If you are the person who is continuously abusing other people, verbally or physically, or sabotaging them, um, you have a boundary issue. It then has an ethical issue. So when we talk about self-sacrifice, we're not talking about people who lack boundaries or a deep sense of ethics. We're, we're talking about people who are learning to discern right from wrong, good from evil. And not just as binaries, but just saying, I'm making progress in being more accepting of people. Years ago, a guy I hold in high regard, super smart, I mean, amazing guy, he said, you know, I'm coming to learn that I need to learn how to love people. That was a breakthrough, a boundary breakthrough and an ethical breakthrough. I need to learn to love people. And with all that energy and discipline and capacity that he had, he started saying, what would it look like for me to learn to love people? And the joke about that, you know, is a guy that goes to the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist says, you know, you got a big problem. Um, you need to think about other people. And the guy goes, doctor, you're so right. What other people? There's no context for this. Where do I go? So loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, uh, while we love ourselves, like we love ourselves, is, is, is the boundary that sets us up for the ethics. So the, what do the ethics look like? Doing good by helping people thrive and flourish in their life and growth. That's virtuous, right? This is an act of self-sacrifice. I'm doing good by helping people thrive and flourish in their life and in their growth. That's an act of virtue. How about this? Doing good and not creating intentional negative consequences. That's an act of self-sacrifice that is wise. I'm not so excited about 
doing good that I'm taking control of another person's life and then making them dependent and passive and feeling overwhelmed. That's not wise. That's foolish. How about this? Doing good, knowing it might trigger unintended negative consequences. I'm going to do good, but I know um, it's going to create sparks. I'm going to do good with wisdom and virtue, but I know it's not going to be well-received. Think of the civil rights movement. It was courageous. They were doing good, knowing that the consequences would be conflictual. And then basically doing good with pure motive to honor and glorify God and bless people. This is Jesus' way. He wants us to be virtuous and wise, courageous, because everything we do as, a, as an act of self-sacrifice comes out of a relationship with the living God, who we know is Lord and Savior and King, not just all right, and the people created in his image that he's, he's redeeming by the shed blood of Jesus, the resurrection from the dead of Jesus, who is the Lord, the King, the Savior. So all of a sudden, self-sacrifice, we start to see it as a right-sized, uh, not minimized, uh, through indifference, uh, or um, mini-sized by cultural edict. Right now, this, the, the church in America is so self-editing because we're afraid of offending people. And so let's just not talk about it because we're all risk-averse and conflict-averse. Or churches say, look, let's just go along to get along. Now, the ch- a church isn't a healthy church being self, being, being, living sacrificially as disciples of Jesus when they're obnoxious. When they're just acting out to make a point. But when any time you step up and say, I'm going I'm to do the right thing in the right way because this is what God and his word tells me to do. You're not going to want to do it intending in to create negative circumstances, but in sometimes, it, sometimes it's just inevitable. You're going to do it with love and respect, not overwhelming people and mugging them in Jesus' name. What are you going to do? You're going to do it out of a motive to honor, glorify God, and bless people. And so Paul writes to the Romans, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So as we, as we offer ourselves to the Lord, we become the sacrifice. That God says, this is what I want. I don't want your, I'll, we'll get to this in a second. You know, it, it's not all the sacrifices made in the temple that God wanted. What he wanted was the hearts of the people. So the, the, the heart of self-sacrifice is having a heart for God and having a heart for people. Not assuming a, a, a martyr complex, oh, I do so much for you, you don't appreciate me. Or, hey, stand back, I'm going to save the world. If you think you're going to save the world, you're a fool. It's not our job to save the world. There is a Savior of the world. And we'd be a fool not to walk with the Savior through the world. And if that looks like self-sacrifice, it's not going to be because it's a penalty, a punishment. It's because we're going to treat it as a privilege, right? And so loving God and loving people always involves sacrifice and suffering. It can't be otherwise. You can't love anybody at a deep level and not at some point bump into sacrifice and suffering. But it's not a price for being in a relationship. It's the inevitable privilege of being in a relationship. It's a privilege. 
a person who is, is walking with God in deep, uh, healthy, functional love and learning to love people in a deep and functional way considers suffering and sacrifice a privilege. And you might say, that sounds crazy. I don't do that. Oh, yeah, you do. Yes, you do. Are you married or dating a perfect person? You say, well, obviously not. They are, but I'm not. Well, do they ever, in a, even in the tiniest way, cause you suffering? Or in, in, in occasional moments, do you actually do what you would rather not do in order to love them and care for them? Well, yeah, sure, I do that. It doesn't cost me much. Ah, that's because you haven't been in a relationship that long. Or because you've been in a, in a relationship for a long time, but you've stopped growing, and therefore you're at a superficial level. You're living the same date for 40 years. Hi, how you do? What's your name? Versus who are you? What does it mean to be in a relationship with you? If you deeply love someone or something in this world, you will suffer and you will sacrifice. It comes with the territory. We all know this in our hearts. Why? Because love makes us vulnerable. You finally meet this person that you want to spend your life with. You think, what if something happened to them? You have this brand new baby in your arms and you're saying, this is the most precious thing I can imagine. Is, is he or she going to be okay? I'll do anything to protect this baby. In fact, I won't even sleep for the first few weeks. I just want to look at the baby. And if the baby makes any kind of little squeak, I'm going to be there holding the baby. I'm going to be concerned. I'm going to rush to the emergency room and say, my baby squeaked. And somebody with a lot of wisdom is going to pat you on the shoulder and say, you know what, so glad you're here, but you can go home now because baby squeak. This is a healthy, happy baby squeaking like a healthy, happy baby. Oh, thank goodness. I'm exaggerating this. But anytime you care about somebody, think about the people who are caring for people who are sick or dying. They're suffering with those people. One of the great underestimated roles in the world are the people who are caregivers of those who are suffering and dying. The person dies, we have a service, we lament, we celebrate, we commit them to the Lord. But meanwhile, the person who's been with them all that time is exhausted. They've been grieving all along, and they're going, I, I don't know what I'm going to do next. You see, this is what happens. If you are at all vulnerable to the power of love, you will feel pain. Because it's what we love most that breaks our hearts. And we, we are willing to take that risk. It's, an act, it's the ultimate act of self-sacrifice. I'm going to learn to love this child. And I'm going to be patient and kind. I'm going to be committed. And as this child gets older, I might have to say to this child, you've got to go. And there's another heartbreak there. My child is doing these things that are morally unacceptable. And I haven't turned my back on them, but they have turned their back on me because I won't compromise my values to accommodate their wishes. And there's another level of pain. You, you with me on this? Self-sacrifice is something that everybody in this room experiences on a daily basis. And so when we put it in the context of being a disciple of Jesus, why is it such an odd thought? Self-sacrifice, that sounds kind of creepy, like the people who whip themselves. You know? No, what it is is a person whose heart is open and vulnerable to the living God and walks with the living God to the world cannot help but have your heart break over the things that break the heart of God. And you will suffer. A friend of mine was driving into a village uh, uh, in India, a known village where underage girls were being prostituted uh, 
for other people's profit. As my friend and the, the, the guy with him who were doing an investigation so they could take the data and present it to the local powers that be, as they came into the community, somebody recognized them, and immediately in this small car were two large guys being bombarded by rocks. Every window was broken, uh, glasses flying all over them, and finally some people come along and they break it up and move these crowds, this mob away, and our friends get out. Now you say, why in the world would you do that? Why would you do that? Why would you put yourself at risk? You're, you're, you're a married man. You've got children at home. Yeah, that's why I'm doing this. There were children here who needed us to be here. You almost died. Right. My wife and I talked to you very carefully. My kids and I talked to you very carefully. My church has been encouraging me to do this. You see whether it's a very small gesture of love that you make to somebody that causes you inconvenience or even annoyance or some amazingly massive thing, self-sacrifice is a way of life that makes us alive. And so the sacrifices God values and honors are mercy, love, compassion, serving, and giving. You cannot do those at arm's length. To bring those things into people's lives, you've got to get scary close. Again, not barging in, or taking over, but being present. What do we call it? Empathy, availability, compassion, care, respect, humility, depth of character, depth of feeling, intense, deep, abiding joy. Again, let, let me uh, this, uh, quote Jesus in, in a fuller passage in Mark. Uh, one of the teachers of the law, a Pharisee presumably, came and heard them debating. Other Pharisees were asking Jesus all kinds of questions. And noticing that Jesus had given these, these uh, adversaries a good answer, uh, this guy says, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And, of course, you know this scripture if you've read the Bible much. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6. Shema Israel, Adonai Echad. Hear, Israel, the Lord is a plurality of one. That's, that's a loaded phrase. He is one. It's one. It's not just a person. It's one unified. We call him the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, there is no commandment greater than these. Well, now you hear a, a, a Pharisee complimenting Jesus. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And get this, this is the bombshell that this, this, this man says. A man whose whole life is, is, is built to defending the temple and the institution of the temple, the sacrificial system in Israel, says this. This is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, for us, it's like, yeah, what's the point? It's not a big, shocking statement. But at the moment, this was massively shocking and profound. Because, again, what, as I said earlier, what does God want? Our sacrifices? No, he's instituted those. But what he wants is our heart. That's where a self-sacrificing life comes in. You know, present your bodies as living sacrifices, Right? So, 
sacrifice is essential to overcoming superficiality and developing faith. No adult can have a deeply satisfying relationship with another adult without some level of sacrifice. We are in a culture that we so want deep relationship, but we're so unwilling to make the necessary sacrifices. In fact, we don't even want to be with people who don't agree exactly with what we believe. We don't want to be with people who might challenge what we believe. We don't want to be with people who take delight in challenging (laughs) what we we believe and that they don't believe. But this is part of sacrificial love. It's saying, uh, look, again, I'm not a doormat, but I'm going to love you while I love myself and as I love myself. Knowing that God loves me unconditionally, I'm going to do my best to love you unconditionally. Now, I have boundaries, and if you, have, if you cross those boundaries, I'll say no. And I have ethics. But what I want to do is virtuous and wise and courageous and represents Jesus' way. So sacrifice is essential to overcoming superficiality and developing faith. And so let me phrase it this way. Sacrifice isn't what we do to be miserable. Sacrifice is what we do to achieve something highly desirable. Oh, I know that people will like me. No, it has nothing to do with do people like me. <laughs> it's, is this the right thing to do and the right reasons to do it? Because I want to love you as God has loved me. Another thought, another take on this. Sacrifice is an investment in your personal growth. Oh, it's self-serving then. Well, no, it's self-sacrificial. But in, in, in being open to this and vulnerable to this, to love like Jesus loves you and teaching you to love yourself this way and others like that, sacrifice is an investment in personal growth, in mature love, and creative generosity. Why is that an important pathway? Because that's the pathway to set deeply satisfying life. Well, I don't have enough money to be generous. I don't have enough time to be generous. I don't have enough whatever. Are you kidding me? Without generosity, you lose your humanity. Without love, there is no maturity. Without vulnerability, there is no personal growth. And anticipate where that will take you in a week or a month or a year or a decade. Do you want to be that person? I don't think so. This is the conundrum that faces every one of us. I want this, but I'm not willing to do what it requires to be this. And this is what the message of self-sacrifice is. Not doing something to be miserable, but to achieve something highly desirable. And so sacrifice is how we assess and access and assign value in life. You've heard this a thousand times, whether from an artist or a scientist or an athlete. Anybody in any walk of life has said something like this. It was a sacrifice, but it was worth it. It was a sacrifice, but it was worth it. The baby had some serious complications. Our insurance didn't cover it. We sold our home, and the baby is doing just fine. Thank you. Oh, you, you what? You sold your home? Yeah. And the sacrifice was worth it. Whoa. I know, but do you miss your home? Yes, I miss my home. I'd rather miss my home than my child. Do you see where this goes? Was that a heroic move? No. It was simply a move of love based in 
Empathy, availability, compassion, care, respect, humility, depth of character, depth of feeling, and deep abiding joy. And then sacrifice makes something possible that otherwise wouldn't be. Sacrifice makes possible something that would not have otherwise been possible or have occurred. Do you want to be that kind of a person or in that kind of a community that makes things possible that otherwise would not have happened? I think the answer is yes. Why? Because it's a commitment to a better world. It's a commitment to a better way of of being in the world. You want to be that kind of person. Who doesn't? But here's the problem. Uh, Our desires, our intentions aren't enough. And this is why it all starts with God. He is enough. And Him in us becomes enough. Otherwise, we will connect, uh, we will disconnect from Him and say, again, my job is to save the world. It's a fool's errand. You'll be crushed to disappointment. But to say God is saving the world and redeeming the world, and I'm included in that, and I'm going to join Him in His work in the world, that is sustainable. As they say, that is scalable. That's powerful and transformational. And that's a life that every single person in this room wants, deeply and desperately, and needs deeply and desperately. Why? Because it's a visionary way of living. It's imaginative and creative and visionary. You are helping make something happen that would not have otherwise happened. Because God is making something happen that otherwise would not have happened. That's why we each have a story and a testimony. Here's what my life was like without God. Here's what it's been like since I've been walking with God. It's way better. Yeah, but you're suffering a lot of stuff. Right. In the midst of my suffering, it's even way better. Oftentimes I've had people have a low moment and be angry at God and saying, hey, because of my faith in Jesus and all the stuff I've been doing for him, why would he let me get cancer? Well, we live in a fallen world. Cancer is a fact of life. And would you rather be going through cancer without him or with him? That's the way I resolve that. Well, if I'm going to inevitably, my body's breaking down daily. At some point, I'm going to have some kind of a horrible disease or affliction. Do I want to be in Jesus or or not uh, in Jesus going through that? Because in him is the hope of life now and forever. And so what's your vision for growing in your relationship with Jesus? What's your plan? What are the practices that reflect your priorities in terms of your time, your talent, your treasure as Jesus the disciple? What can you point to, not as a bragging right or a trophy, but to say, these are the kinds of things I'm doing and I'm finding super helpful. I take right off the top some of my money and I set it aside for God's purposes. He's entrusted the rest to me to make decisions with. Here's how I use my time. I start my day, or end my day, or during the week. I take time to be with him and to refocus and make sure I've got the right fixed point on my horizon so I can be restored and renewed. I figure that God has given me certain gifts and talents and abilities and connections and networks, so I try to use those and leverage those to his glory and the benefit of people in his name. Oh, you have a plan. Yeah, I'm not perfect at it, and I sometimes forget, and I get too busy, but this is my plan. It's giving me a structure it's taking me uh, on that journey that starts with this vision that I want to be like Jesus. 
And so I've moved from a stage of wishful thinking to imaginative, creative visioning. I've got a plan. I've got a purpose. I've got people who are supporting me in this because without those people, I would give up. Again, I'd face the resistance in me and around me. go, it's not worth it. These people don't even appreciate it. So every significant vision requires a sacrifice. If you're an athlete, you're an artist, you're an educator, you're married, you're a parent, you're starting a business, you're selling a business, uh, you've been entrusted with great wealth or great ability or great whatever, every significant vision requires a sacrifice. And if it doesn't require sacrifice, here's the bad news. Your vision is too small. <laughs> you need a bigger vision. By big, big vision, I don't mean grandiosity, impress everybody. I mean big enough that you actually have to pray about it. I pray the Lord's Prayer, give me this day my daily bread. I, I pray it really most of the time in a pro forma sort of way because I know where the bread is. So at some point, we got bread covered. The, the vision I want to have for my life and for my family is... Not one of grandiosity. It can be very modest, but it reflects what God wants to do that I can't do but for Him. If you don't need to plan or pray, your vision is too small. If you don't need to reprioritize your resources, time, talent, treasure, your vision is too small. If you're playing it safe, you may as well move to Laodicea. You may as well join a church that's a Goldilocks church, nice and neutral. Not too hot, not too cold. See, the future belongs to the faithful. Uh, there's an old saying, the future belongs to the bold. That's every entrepreneur's, entrepreneur's motto. If you know somebody who's an entrepreneur, don't believe that they're an entrepreneur unless they have this tattooed somewhere on their body. The future belongs to the bold is the mantra, the motto of every entrepreneur. The motto of every disciple is, the future belongs to the faithful. Vision is always life-altering, not to impress, but to bless. Not to be flashy, but to be faith-filled. And so if it isn't supported with self-discipline and a plan and prayer, it's, a, it's what? It's a daydream. It's imaginary, not imaginative. It's a fantasy. It's wishful thinking. Let me give you one practical life example. For example, if you have ever worked harder and longer than you thought possible, if you have ever given more than you thought you could possibly give, if you have ever faced dark fears of failure and frustration, you're probably married and a parent. You're probably married or you're a parent or soon will be. This describes you. You have worked harder and longer than you thought possible. You have given more than you thought you could possibly give. You have faced dark fears of failure and frustration. And you're a better person for it, aren't you? And you would tell every younger person asking you for advice, this is what it's going to take. Again, not to impress, but to become. And so a great vision, by definition, involves overcoming great odds of one sort or another. And so I ask you the question, what is at stake in overcoming obstacles that stand between you and your vision? What is at stake for you to overcome obstacles that stand between you and your vision? I would tell you that what is at stake, a bunch of things, but they all come under the category of sacrifice. Never sacrifice your boundaries or your values, your, your moral principles. 
But what sacrifices are you willing to make to be vulnerable enough to learn things that are hard to learn, do things that are hard to do, love people that are hard to love? Stick to things that you know are true but are hard to stick to in the world in which we live and the culture in which we live. If we understand and embrace God's vision for this world, we're always inspired to join him in it. If we understand what the gospel is and what the gospel does, we cannot help but be inspired and moved to join him in it. I'll leave you with this passage that I think sums it up nicely. It's out of Ephesians. Paul writing uh, in the first chapter to, uh, in, his, in his letter to the Ephesian people. People of Ephesus, uh, uh, the main city of which Laodicea is a, a smaller city in uh, Turkey. And he says this, For this reason, talking about the gospel and what God is doing in the world, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord, Jesus, and your love for all God's people, oh my gosh, the two commandments, love the Lord and love people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. These are people who are on a journey with Jesus as disciples. They're already in play. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. He's fully funding this endeavor we call self-sacrifice. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all other rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. What was the name that was being invoked in Ephesus? Caesar. or the god Artemis, or any number of other things. None of them matter because Jesus was above them all. And God placed all things under his feet, under the feet of Jesus, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the source of our sacrifice, and this is what sacrifice looks like. Embrace it, commit to it, lean into it. If you're already in the midst of it, rejoice and be glad. If it's scary for you, take that first step. If you're feeling lonely in the midst of it, invite partners to help you along the way. If you're feeling discouraged and it doesn't seem to be working, get wise counsel. The issue isn't should you or shouldn't be. The issue is you should be. And God will be doing everything that I just read in that passage to make it possible for you to complete that and fulfill that. This blows my mind. This makes me want to get up early and stay up late. I hope it does the same for you. Lord Jesus, I thank you and I praise you for each person here who you brought by your Holy Spirit today to be encouraged, to be reminded of your love for them, to be inspired or redirected or encouraged in some way that allow them uh, to grow in their knowledge and love of you and the way that they love themselves and other people in your name. Lord, this is outrageous that you have done this and that you've invited us to be part of it. 
May the fact that you are all right be a confession, an expression of deep confession, that you're taking us somewhere better than we can imagine. That you might help us overcome the confusion of minimizing you by saying, now you're just all right. You are the Lord, you are the King, you are the Savior. For that we give you honor and glory and praise. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this is a time in the, in the service where we take an offering, and the offering is not money. Uh, you can contribute money on your way out, and there's a box there, you can send it in. This is the offering of you. Having heard it, you've heard, and the words sung, and the words prayed, and the words preached. What is God saying to you? So in the time of, of worship, as we conclude together, offer yourself to Him, wherever you are. Uh, invite Him to meet you where you are and take you where He wants you to go. Let's do that together. Letting go of every single dream I lay each one down at your feet Every moment of my wandering Never changes what you see I've tried to win this war, I confess My hands are weary I need your rest Mighty warrior, king of the fight No matter what I face, you're by my side When you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through
pray for you before you leave today. Go right out around the corner. There's a beautiful, lovely garden on the other side of that wall outside, uh, the prayer garden, and there'll be people that will pray with you for whatever concerns you have for yourself or other people. If there's anything we can do to help you uh, fuel your faith, uh, recommend books for you to read, uh, groups to get connected to, let us know. Uh, go out and have a bite to eat, a cup of coffee, and, and meet some people. So may the Lord be with you. May the Lord give you everything you need to walk in his name, experiencing his love, his forgiveness, the power of his transforming presence, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for being here today. You are my strength and comfort. You are my steady hand. You are my firm foundation. The rock on which I stand.